This Week in Money is archived online at talkdigitalnetwork.com. My guest is James Corbett, publisher of thecorbettreport.com and editorial writer for the International Forecaster. He's speaking to us from Japan, where he has worked and lived since 2004. Welcome back to This Week in Money, James. Well, thank you for having me back. It's a pleasure to be here. James, what's the latest with the Corbett Report? Well, I have just recently published a new two-hour documentary. Uh, it's called 9-11 Whistleblowers, and it relates to various people who have talked about uh, aspects of the 9-11 story that are not part of the official 9-11 narrative, including even commissioners of the 9-11 Commission report. So that's up for free uh, viewing, as with all my reports on corporatereport.com uh, slash 911 whistleblowers. Now, is that about the people who had uh, good intelligence that something bad was about to happen? There were a number of different aspects there that I could have gone with. Uh, some of them relate to, for example, people like Kevin Ryan, who was working for a subsidiary of Underwriters Laboratory, which underwrote the steel in the Twin Towers, and his personal experience of dealing with the investigation that was ongoing into the collapse of those uh, towers. Uh, I talked uh, talked to and talked about Michael Springman, who was working in the Jeddah Consulate, where 14 of the 19 alleged hijackers received their visas, and he had an interesting experience working there in the late 1980s, rubber-stamping visas for terrorists, as he outlined in his book about his experience there called Visas for Al-Qaeda. Uh, I talked uh, about, for example, uh, Kate Jenkins, who was an EPA scientist, worked at the EPA since 1979, blew the whistle on the EPA's attempt to cover up the air quality at Ground Zero in the wake of 9-11 and was attempted, they attempted to oust her as she fought back, eventually won back her position after several years of legal wrangling. But uh, as of course we now know, she was very much right about the hazardous air quality around Ground Zero and many hundreds if not thousands of people have died and are or are dying from the effects of that and the attempts by the government to cover that up. U.S.-China trade talks. What's the latest you've heard? Well, the latest that I've heard, like I'm sure everyone else by this point, of course, uh, President Trump said earlier this week that a deal, a trade deal could happen sooner than you think. And so, of course, we saw the Dow Jones jumping uh, at, as if on command, 150 points following that bold declaration. Of course, it is worth exactly as much as the paper that it's not printed on, which is to say nothing at all. It is just more hot air bloviating from Washington. <laughs> so I don't put any stock whatsoever in such pronouncements. And it's humorous to me that the stock market would react to such a thing, but it just goes to show how far detached from reality the stock market is at this point. Um, I don't think that there's been any significant progress, and I'll believe it when I see it at any rate. How much of China's economy has been relying on trade with the U.S.? Well, uh, almost, I would venture to say, almost all of it, and not just in the ways we are being told. This is not just about agricultural products or even just about high tech, although obviously there's a lot of tech uh, innovation going on here, but it's all sorts of transfers of technology and, uh, and economic uh, power to China that has been obviously part of this whole process of building the Chinese dragon over the course of the past not only two decades. This extends back to the Deng Xiaoping era and the so-called capitalist road um, that took over in China in the late 1970s and immediately started making deals with kingmakers like David Rockefeller on Wall Street and starting the banking infrastructure that became 
the the basis for the transfer of technology and jobs to China, which obviously has been the predominant narrative of the last couple of decades. So this goes very deep, not only into the Chinese economy, but essentially into the American economy now, or at least what's left of it. And this has been a very, uh, very deliberately planned out uh, agenda, basically, to offshore not only the economic productivity in terms of manufacturing and jobs, but even the innovation and research and development has been a huge part of this. Within the 1990s alone, you had Motorola and Nokia and Siemens and IBM and Microsoft and GM and Samsung and Nortel and GE and JVC and Intel and P&G and DuPont and Ericsson and Matsushita and Mitsubishi and Lucent and Bell and AT&T and many others all have opening up R&D facilities in China, all of which came with specific strings attached, specifically stating that they would have to uh, allow ch- the Chinese government essentially access to some of their technologies that they develop there. And this has been an open and known part of this uh, going on for decades now. In fact, the U.S. government itself has released its own report on the U.S. commercial technology transfers to the People's Republic of China, where they conclude that this is part of a continuing trend that has been developing for years with the active aid of Congress. And we saw in the 1990s, for example, the reporting about the Clintons uh, helping to transfer military technology to China at that time. Um, it came out just a, a decade or so ago. Bush's, uh, George Bush's brother, Neil Bush, had intimate ties to a Chinese microchip maker. I mean, there's a lot of deep-seated ties in the American economy and government complex that have uh, basically been facilitating this rise of China. So it's a very deep and uh, profound relationship that goes much beyond the kind of uh, surface-level trade issues that are dangled out in front of the public. President Trump wants intellectual property theft on the table for any trade deal with China. How can China make restitution for all the intellectual property theft? Well, that's an interesting question because it comes with it uh, embedded a lot of assumptions about what this technology um, uh, theft, so to speak, is is really about. And in fact, a better way to frame this is the theft that's going on from Washington to uh, basically transfer this technology over to China, which I, I hinted at there and I've talked about before on my podcast, for example, on episode 297 of the Corbett Report podcast. But I, I was writing about this idea recently when it came specifically to military technology And I highlighted in an article for The Forecaster called China's Suspiciously American Arsenal, A Closer Look, I I highlighted side-by-side comparisons of a number of technologies um, that China, military technologies that China is rolling out that are, shall we say, suspiciously similar, uh, a better word for it might be identical, to the American versions. For example, the the Chinese version of the X-47B looks very much like an X-47B, or the Chinese version of the F-35B Lightning II looks very much like an F-35B II, or or, uh, unmanned helicopters and other, other such technologies that China is rolling out miraculously always seems to look exactly like their American counterparts. And in fact, I even highlighted one example of uh, a Chinese, uh, a new Chinese uh, technology that was being highlighted about uh, drones and radar tracking that was being highlighted by an official Chinese government source that even in their demonstration included English readouts on the display, which even Popular Mechanics was compelled to to note that it must be a remarkable coincidence that uh, this... uh, 
it, it doesn't seem apparent why they'd be using English displays unless, of course, this technology originated from the United States or other Western countries. Well, bing, 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 that's exactly where this is coming from. So rather than framing this as intellectual property theft, I think the more important part is who are the thieves and what is being stolen and for what purpose? And I think once you start to put the pieces of the puzzle together, it's quite evident that China is being built up by American uh, technology transfers that are being facilitated and greenlighted by Washington and some of the players there. We'll have more with James Corbett when This Week in Money returns. This Week in Money is archived online at talkdigitalnetwork.com. Welcome back. We're speaking with James Corbett. James, what's the latest on China versus Hong Kong, or is it really a versus or assimilation? Yes. Well, good question. Well, I suppose it depends who you ask. If you ask the uh, op-ed writers of the Wall Street Journal, you're going to find out that Hong Kong may topple communism, according to them. And they think that this might be the beginning of the end of the unraveling of Beijing and the Chinese regime. I don't tend to believe that myself, but you can go and read their report and their mostly American sources that they (laughs) relied on for compiling that report and come to your own conclusions. Uh, I think that this is just another extension of what we've seen developing essentially since the takeover of sorts happened in 97, the transfer at any rate of Hong Kong, obviously over to Beijing's sphere of influence. It's a special administrative region, whatever that means precisely. And of course, that's part of what this is all about. What does that mean precisely? And of course, every player has their finger in this pie, including the United States, which has just passed a a bill that just made its way through uh, the House the what what was the actual official euphemism the hong kong human rights and democracy act of 2019 basically reaffirming that the us will only work with a democratic and free hong kong that if china attempts to intervene then the all bets are off the table uh which is essentially just reaffirming what the us uh has officially had on record since the early 1990s and in fact Uh, I did point in a recent Forecaster article to a 2014 interview that took place on foxnews.com that was conducted with an old hand of the uh, the Bush One regime who was talking about relations with China. And it was pointed out at that time uh, during the umbrella protests that were going on back then in 2014, uh, it was pointed out, well, China, the Chinese government and Chinese mouthpieces are saying that the U.S. is involved in this. What do you think? And they turned to this uh, old... Bush regime uh, hand, and he uh, he admits, well, of course, we, we do spend millions of dollars on democracy uh, groups in the region, and of course, they do have a role in this, so the Chinese aren't completely wrong about this, <laughs> which remains true to this day. If you go and follow the funding to the National Endowment for Democracy, which is just an extension of the CIA, you find that they have their money and their fingerprints all over this, which is not to say that there is not a legitimate protest movement in Hong Kong. There certainly is, but Unfortunately, it, that, like so many other events, is being manipulated from all sides, from the Chinese side, from the U.S. side. So what the Hong Kongers really think and feel tends to be the excluded part of this conversation. At the very least, we can say that the protests are continuing, and there seems to be no sign of them completely abating at this point. So uh, there's definitely going to be... This is going to come to a head one way or another, but I don't, unlike the Wall Street Journal op-ed writers, I don't see this as toppling the uh, Beijing government anytime soon. Are you bullish on Hong Kong going forward? Well, I suppose that depends on exactly what you mean. Just in terms of markets and what have you, uh, yes, I don't think that this will fundamentally upset the uh, the market equilibrium 
Although I think in the long run, this will have ramifications as uh, I think Hong Kong is becoming more under the Chinese umbrella, economically speaking and financially speaking, and uh, less of the kind of uh, Western, uh, less of a Western toehold into China and the Chinese financial and economy, so much as a Chinese toehold into the Western economy, if you understand the uh, the difference there. I think uh, Hong Kong has always been that sort of Western uh, access to to China and to the yuan, but it's it's kind of flipping the other way around. And I think China is becoming the more dominant part of that relationship. I think that process will continue, so that fundamentally, in the long run, I think Hong Kong will be under the in the Chinese economic sphere more so than in the Western banking sphere. But that's a process that will be ongoing, and I don't think it's going to be resolved simply with these protests. If China was a stock, would it be a short? <laughs> well, it's an interesting analogy to use, um, which, again, I think relies on the common sense notion, which it has been demonstrated to be completely wrong, that stock, the stock market actually reflects actual market reality, which we know at this point it's far detached. But if it were reflective of actual reality, would... China Inc., so to speak, would it be short or long? Uh, I think it depends on the uh, the outlook. Short term, I think a lot of negative things are developing for China. But I think long term, I think the goal and the vision has always been longer term. China, not just t- China 2020, but China 2030 and and outwards from there. I think the Chinese regime is perfectly happy to out outlast the Trump regime, which will one way or another go, if not in a year from now, then four or five years from now, it will be gone and uh, Xi Jinping will still be president for life. And I think that's kind of the long-term outlook and aspect that uh, this has. And in that regard, I still think that China is working closely with uh, a lot of the the Western banking institutions and industrialists and financiers. And uh, as it has that kind of deep, deep level of support, from the West, I think it is being set up to be the sort of bipolar challenger to the United States uh, in the sense that the Soviet Union was built up similarly through a process of technology transfer and other things in the mid 20th century to be a rival to the United States that justifies the U.S. Uh, cracking down on its domestic population and also, uh, of course, spending lots and lots of money on the military. I, I think this is a similar situation. And I think that's why long term, China does have a, a, I guess, a positive outlook if you want to look at it from some sort of strictly economic sense. But unfortunately, I think that's a negative thing for the world because it does mean Cold War 2.0. Are any of the statistics that have come out of or coming out of China likely to be accurate? I know we used to joke that every year they would say 6.7% growth, and exactly a year later they would report 6.7% growth. Yes, yes, exactly right. I mean, it is a joke. Uh, whoever would take China's official statistics seriously needs their head examined. And I have written about that for the forecaster before. I, I would suggest people go and look back at that, uh, talking about China fudging their gold numbers and everything else. Um, it, it's just so, so ludicrous on its face. I mean, just basic mathematics that do not add up, like the different state uh, and, and provincial GDPs not adding up to the, the full national GDP and things like this, which, I mean, clearly show that they're full of nonsense. Uh, in fact, we even had uh, Li Qichang uh, several years ago in a leaked diplomatic cable 
having admitted that, of course, the GDP numbers are just total nonsense and, and just cooked books. So in order to find the real GDP of China, you could use things like, and then he was talking about uh, some of the economic indicators that you would actually look at if you wanted something approaching the truth. Again, people can look into my work for more on that. But yeah, I mean, uh, there's just no attachment to physical reality in the numbers that come out of there. China's been printing money like crazy for years. Could China's economy collapse under all of its debt? That is uh, certainly a possibility. Um, the question is, who would come to collect on that debt and in what way? Uh, that's really the question, because, of course, China has been acting like like the United States and other countries do, which is to print money into existence like there's no tomorrow. But in the U.S. example, of course, that has been done through, for example, quantitative easing, where it's used to buy toxic mortgage-backed securities and other toxic assets that just basically get parked in the reserve accounts of various banking institutions and uh, just inflate the, the Fed's books, but don't do much in terms of the actual economy. China has at least been using its crazy money printing to create actual physical infrastructure. And then the question is, okay, well, who's going to come collect on that debt if it collapses and in what way and who's going to physically take that over? I mean, that's where it starts to become a whole different calculus because then you're not talking economics, you're talking geopolitics and unfortunately military geopolitics. Um, so could a uh, Chinese economic collapse, a debt collapse happen? It certainly could, but what would that actually look like? And again, unfortunately, I think that would not look good for the world at large, as that's when large-scale wars tend to take place. We'll have more with James Corbett right after the break. This Week in Money is archived online at talkdigitalnetwork.com. Welcome back. We're speaking with James Corbett. James, is China today comparable to Japan in the late 80s when they seem to be buying anything and everything around the planet? Right. I think there is an analogy there to be made, although I don't know how strictly we can use that analogy. Certainly, the Japan bubble of the 80s was largely uh, the result of central bank intervention at that time and uh, basically an early form of QE. Um, that did explode spectacularly around 1990. So we know how that left Japan in its wake. Um, but I think at the very least, it is an interesting narrative to compare to China, because of course, in the late 1980s, Japan was going to take over the world and everyone envisioned the future like a Blade Runner type future where everything is owned by Japan, even in the United States. Now there is talk some of talk like that um, with regards to China at any rate. But uh, I, again, I don't think we should take this talk about China taking over the world any more seriously than we should have taken the talk about Japan taking over the world. And in that sense, I think the analogy might hold. But in terms of the actual economics of what's going on, I think the Chinese economy of 2019 is quite a bit different than Japan of 1989. Did China's hyper money printing lead to real estate bubbles around the world? Is it the only factor leading to such things? No. But is it a contributing factor? Certainly. I mean, I think demonstrably so, and probably most obviously in places like uh, in British Columbia and other places where obviously a lot of Chinese money has flooded in and artificially inflated housing bubbles uh, there and, and elsewhere. Uh, so yes, I think has it been at least partially responsible for that? Yes. People from mainland China are relatively new to real estate investing. Are they likely to sell their real estate around the world towards the bottom of the real estate bubble, just like what happened during the dot-com bubble burst? 
Well, I think it would be a folly to think of these investors as investors in that sense, so much as people who are simply trying to get money out of China and parked somewhere safely uh, halfway across the planet. And I think that's more of the concern here. So I don't expect these people to be acting as regular investors in a regular market. And also the lack of liquidity of such a market makes it more difficult for them to simply just dump stocks like the dot-com investors dumped stocks back in the day. I mean, these are actual physical assets that have been purchased, usually at great pains and difficulty, and probably a lot of it illegally through in, uh, money that has gotten through the capital controls that China has uh, placed on this, this money in the first place. It's doubtful that they'll be able to liquidate it and move it around or bring it back to China in, in any usual way that an usual investor would work in a typical market. So I, I think that's the wrong way of looking at it. Um, I think there's a lot of investors in, in these markets that might be writing that down to the bottom because they'd be happy to have physical real estate in a foreign land, um, let alone um, whether it's inflated or not. There are rumblings China has financial relationships with a number of politicians around the world. What are you hearing? Well, absolutely so. I mean, I, it would be almost inconceivable if certain arrangements and above board and under the table were not uh, being made constantly by someone in a uh, economically dominant position, which China increasingly is. But of course, as I've intimated a number of times in this conversation, that that entire dominant position has been fostered, shall we say, by uh, the these very types of relationships with politicians uh, that, again, extend deeply into uh, some of the, the highest offices of the land, including, of course, not just the Clintons, but the Bushes and many, many others. Uh, and, of course, those in economic power as well. So I think there's a lot more to that story than is intimated. Sometimes it's just framed as, oh, this Australian pr prime minister is bought and paid for by China or something along those lines. But I think more than that cartoon level of reality, there's a much deeper relationship that exists between specifically between, I think, Beijing and Washington, um, that has led to the, the dominant position that China finds itself in today. Is China trying to infiltrate Western society? And if they are, why? Uh, this is where we get into a lot of Orientalism, speculating about those strange East Asians and their, their weird mindset. And this uh, leads inevitably into the type of clash of civilizations narrative that I, th I have seen has been is being fostered right now, um, including by high level uh, government officials. Uh, there was some just some strange statements that were being made recently, um, even by people like Chiron Skinner who is a director of policy planning at Pompeo's uh, State Department. And she was saying at that time, a few months ago, at a future security forum in Washington, she was talking about China as an economic competitor, an ideological competitor that for the first time in history was not Caucasian, <laughs> which is an interesting way of framing it, and basically saying that it's a fight with a really different civilization and a different ideology. And this, of course, frames it in some sort of clash of civilizations type of narrative, which we all know how that goes. That, of course, was the way that the, uh, the whole Islam versus Western civilization clash was framed in the 1990s and helped, I think, give rise to the narrative that became what we now know of as the war on terror. So be careful what you talk about. It may come true in some form or other. Um, and that's, I think, the way things are heading. I wrote about this recently in the forecaster Clash of Civilizations 2.0. I think it's not well, I think a lot of this is overblown. And uh, certainly, does China want to exert cultural influence around the world the way the US has exerted cultural influence around the world if they could snap their fingers and make that so? I'm sure they would. 
But uh, what country wouldn't would be a, a good question of, of uh, to frame this issue. It's just a question, can China now more effectively do that? And since they are holding a greater and greater economic lever, that does give them some leverage to do that. Does China have ongoing internal civil unrest we don't hear anything about? Uh, yes, of course, constantly. And uh, they are constantly trying to suppress anything that looks like unrest, which is, of course, why we are now seeing the rise of this uh, totalitarianism 2.0 or whatever it is exactly with social credit scores and this type of regime that's being put into place with the, the cameras and, and all of it being networked together so that any, any even hint of uh, disobedience could be cracked down on at a moment's notice. And we're starting to see the really creepy Orwellian ways this is being implemented in order to crack down on, obviously, civil unrest. Why would these types of systems be put in place precisely to uh, crack down on civil unrest. And of course, one of the most worrying things about that from the Western perspective is that a lot of these same ideas are worming their way into Western countries as well. Um, and I think we would be naive not to see some of the parallels of these, the creation of the social credit score type of surveillance infrastructure going up in the West and not seeing what's happening in China as sort of a bellwether of what could happen in the rest of the world. Are the banks in China making it tougher to get mortgages and loans? Uh, China is uh, attempting to uh, walk the very fine balancing line. They've had a number of uh, cash cr crunches and, uh, and a, a very destabilizing shadow banking industry that's taken off in the last several years as investors have been chasing unrealistic expectations that have been set in the first decade of the 21st century. They're, they're still trying to chase those and, and going into the shadow banking industry, industry to do it. So China has been trying to tamp the spigot, as it were. But every time they do so, they end up with a cash crunch or other type of crisis that means they have to open the spigot up again. So it's more like walking a type of delicate uh, balancing uh, balancing act and, and hoping they won't fall off that ledge. And if they don't, I mean, it will be something of a miracle. I think it, it, the question more to the point is when and if that will happen. And unfortunately, I think I'm running out of time here. I have to get running to my next interview. James, always great talking to you. My guest has been James Corbett, publisher of thecorbettreport.com. He was speaking to us from Japan.